just Hi guys, how are you? We're starting something new today, which I'm kind of excited about. Actually, I'm real excited about it. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm going to let it show. I'm excited. I'm, I'm a lot excited. Uh, <laughs> on Saturday, which was yesterday, my wife Valerie and I went down to Kansas City Art Institute. Uh, we have a daughter that's there that's graduating, but we were actually there for our other daughter, Lily, who's considering that uh, school. Uh, and so it was their day to welcome all of these potential students And if you've never experienced uh, sort of the open house day on the campus of an art school, you need to do it, okay? You need to figure out a way, pretend like you're going to go there or something, just to go and experience that. I love to watch people. You guys know this about me. And so there's something really fascinating about all of these people from all over the country, all these different walks of life that show up here. And of course, you know, teenagers, right? I was one too, so this isn't a bag on you guys. I want to be clear, okay? I still express myself in clothing, right? But there's a self-expression thing that's happening. And then if you're an art student, that's like tripled or quadrupled, like it is like, like out there, okay? And so we're here and you've got all of these kids that are expressing themselves in the way that they're dressing and then you have all of their parents sort of in tow and they're sort of proud of them, but they're sort of not proud of them. They're sort of embarrassed, but they're sort of happy and like, you know, it's just like, it's just odd. It was just odd, but it was really fun to watch. But you have these parents that are in these conferences and teachers are doing their best, these professors, to tell you basically we're not going to harm your children, we promise. We know the stories you've heard about art school, but we promise your kids uh, will survive it, right? It's sort of that whole, whole thing. But it was interesting to me how these parents would be curious, but they would express concerns. It's like, well, if art is subjective, how do you grade children? Like it was all that kind of stuff, okay? But everybody that was there, I realized this, everyone that was there, we were all there for this singular purpose. We were there to see the school for ourselves and to make a judgment. That's what was happening. And so some of the kids that were there had already made their choice and they were there and they were just experiencing it. They were going to actually go. But there were lots of others of us who haven't decided. We were undecided. And so we were making this judgment. And I think that this is similar to some of the things that are going to be happening in these stories that we're going to open up over the next few weeks. And so what we have here is we have the New Testament and throughout the, like the Jesus and all of his life and his ministry and all these amazing things that we have record of him doing, not only during his life, but even after his resurrection, you have thousands of people, guys, thousands of people that came to see Jesus to make their own judgments about him right? I mean, these are the stories that we hear over and over again. Over and over, we have people. And so some people will come to Jesus and they would see him as this a trickster or a charlatan or a magician, right? Uh, he, uh, a, a distraction from God at best and at worst, leading people into evil, right? Some people saw him that way. You had others who viewed Jesus as this lunatic or madman and his vision was obviously clouded by these delusions of being way more than he was, some would say. And then there were others. They didn't know what they were seeing, right? They just knew that it was intriguing and they were fascinated and they wanted to know more. But then there were some that saw Jesus as the Messiah or the anointed one. And for those who saw him as Messiah, 
What's interesting about the story, if you really read it carefully, you find out that he wasn't the Messiah that they expected. He wasn't what they expected. Uh, His disciples were some of the people that were the closest to him, right? He shared three years at least of his life with these guys, training them and spending time with them. And even they did not get it. So we've been studying the book of Mark together on Wednesday nights, and that's been really, really good. Um, I'm actually learning from you guys, so I'm just going to talk about all the things that you guys have been saying, which will be, it's made this really easy for me. It's going to be great. So um, the first part of Mark's account, when he, because this book is designed, Mark has intentions with the way that he's put this book together. The first part of his account, it revolves around Jesus and his ministry in Galilee. And so Jesus does this wonderful thing in the very beginning. He kicks everything off uh, in this mission, right? He's, he's going around, he's proclaiming the good news of God. And in Mark 1.15, and here's my paraphrase, it's, listen up, everything you've been waiting for is ready. God's kingdom is now, so turn from serving yourselves and join in with what God is doing. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And so everything in the Bible that came before Jesus, all the way back to Genesis, had led to this moment. And that sets the tone for Matthew, for Mark, for Luke, for John, for all these guys who gave us their stories or the stories of other people who experienced Jesus. And even the stories that continue forward into Acts and Romans and these new fledgling groups of communities of believers that are trying to get together and figure out how to live this life together. It goes forward into that. All of that stuff echoes throughout the rest of scripture, all leading up to this very moment for us, guys. We cannot discount our place in the history. We're a part of this thing that continues to go on and on. It leads to this moment for each of us. And so for the next four weeks leading up to Easter, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at the stories of a few people, uh, a few people who saw Jesus in these scriptures, the stories of people who saw Jesus. And these are people that are like you and they're like me. Some of those people will meet Jesus and they're really having good lives at the time. And then some of the other people will be struggling with these problems and afflictions, bondages, so to speak. We're gonna meet men and women who seem to have it all together. And then we're going to meet other men and women who were falling apart. But there's this reoccurring theme in these stories that I hope will come to light as uh, we continue to delve into them. And it's this, seeing Jesus changes everything. When we see him for who he really is, it changes everything. And like everyone who encountered Jesus, he confronts us now with this question. It's a question that each of us, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are in this room, that you have to answer for yourself. Your parents can answer it for you. You have to answer it for you. And our answer will define the rest of our lives and I would say even beyond that. And the question that Jesus asks is this, have you seen me? Have you seen me? Would you bow your hearts with me? God, we just ask that you would open our minds today to receive your word. And I just pray that you confront us with the truth of your son, of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd remove any distraction or thing that would blind us from this truth and that you would open our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. Open our hearts and show us how to respond to the holiness of your Messiah. 
And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. So as the story begins to unfold, because it's always unfolding, right? As the story begins to unfold, we learn that the primary focus of Jesus' mission is to teach and to preach this good news that we just talked about. But along the way, of course, he gathers a team and all these amazing miracles and things start to follow him around, you know, and everybody's talking about him. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the, right? You know, some of you know, some of you are like, we were not allowed to listen to that when we were children. Some of you get that. Anyway, it's not important. He's gathering all these people, all these people around him, and these miracles are following wherever he goes. And Jesus, one of the main things that we see about him is his compassion. He's compassionate. He loves. He heals. He restores. He frees people who are under oppression from dark spiritual powers in some pretty scandalous and fascinating ways. He's healing and freeing all these people who were in bondage. But here's the thing. That was only a part of his mission, like a a teeny-weeny little part. In fact, if you read the book of Mark, it's almost like all of these encounters on the way were really just rest stops from what he was there to do. Jesus was like anyone that the people had ever seen. And it wasn't just because he healed, but it was because he forgave sin. In fact, if you look at his healings, he forgives sin first and then he heals, which is interesting. And I think part of the reason is he wants us to remind us that the condition of our hearts and of our souls are the thing that is most important to God. Each of these encounters during his time in Galilee is causing people to ask this question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Who is Yeshua? But here's the thing. If you're reading along, Mark's already given us the answer to this question at the very beginning of what's known as his gospel. And here it is, Mark 1.1, right at the start, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we read that and we're like, cool. Right, I knew the answer. I could have gotten that one right if someone had asked me. I would have known that. This is VBS 101, right? Because we're looking back at these events, there's actually a good bit of dramatic irony here. It's like watching those movies where you know that the weird creature is lurking in the house. And you're watching the person as they go inside the house, which is stupid. Why do they always go in the house? Right? So you've got the creature that's lurking there, and you know that it's waiting to spring on them and they're walking in. And so you and I, as we watch this movie, we're the viewers and we're like, don't do it. Don't go in there. We know what's gonna happen. And we read scripture sometimes in the same way. We know how the story ends and so we've got it all put together and we just kind of, oh, that's cool, beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the son of God, that's awesome. Mark tells us plainly who Jesus is And there's a reason. He wants us to read the story looking for him. But as disciples in 2019, we are at a bit of a disadvantage, I would say. Because words and descriptions like this of Jesus have grown very familiar to us. This is kid stuff. We hear it all the time. 
But imagine this, and this is what I want to try and do. I want to try and take all of us and place us there at that time when all of these things were happening. And even after they happened and the early believers were starting to hear and read these stories. So imagine reading the story of Mark within like a generation or two of these events that took place. This sentence would have been shocking. This sentence would have been scandalous. Mark's opening statement to this gospel was treason for Jewish or Roman believe, or Jewish or Roman believers who lived in this culture. Any Jewish person or any Roman person that would have been caught with the sentence in their hands would have been considered treasonous. It was challenging, it was subversive, and it could cost you your life. We throw around this word gospel, and the word gospel just simply means, uh, translated, it's good news, right? The Greek word is euvangelion, if I can say that right. Euvangelion, right? And so the word gospel, here's what we need to know about it. We think that this is our word, or that it's a Bible word, but it's actually a word that was already in use at this time. And it was a word that referred to someone completely different than Jesus, The Romans used the word gospel to refer to the good news of the emperor's accomplishments, the celebration of the rise to power or birth of a king or emperor, specifically Caesar. They would use the word gospel. The gospel was the news or the celebration of Caesar. And yet here we have Mark, very intentionally, mind you, offering new promises of good news of another kind of king, King Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah. It's also important to note that in the first century, revolts and unrest and rebellions and all these kinds of things were a very real threat to those in power. And lots of those things had happened leading up to this moment where Jesus comes onto the scene, and we've talked about that before. But there were some Roman and Jewish leaders who did not understand Jesus as Messiah, and they looked at his ministry as a threat of rebellion. And Jesus brought hope for peace for the broken and for the oppressed, but those that were in power feared losing control. And I would suggest to you that how we see Jesus matters. But God's kingdom was going to look way different than anyone had expected. And so much of the time and effort and the teaching that Jesus does is spent trying to get all this straight, especially with his disciples. And so today, we're just going to focus on three blind men. Those are the stories that I want to tell to you today uh, that come from uh, these accounts, specifically Mark's for most of it. But what we want to do here with these three blind men is we want to understand uh, through these stories how Mark is describing Jesus, and we want to put ourselves in the sandals, so to speak, of Mark's audience. How did they hear these stories? How did they see Jesus when they heard these things? What did they think about them? him? Uh, was it uh, confronting them? Was it a struggle for them to jump to these things? And so these three people we're going to talk about will give us good examples of that perception. So we're going to start it all off in Mark chapter 10, and then we're going to jump back to Mark chapter 8 in just a minute. Verse 46 of Mark chapter 10 starts like this. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Got to make this real, guys. Come on. 
Imagine this guy trying to shout over all the other noise. And many rebuked him. Basically, they sternly said, hey, stop it, (laughs) telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Matthew gives us an extra detail or two, telling us that Bartimaeus was actually one of two blind men that had been following Jesus, shouting. So they were following him around, shouting, have mercy on me, son of David! Son of David! Right? Whatever they had to do to get his attention. Crowds of people pushing, trying to get near him, trying to touch him, holding their babies out in hopes that he would bless them. I mean, we have to think about what this would be like. If you went to the Royal Celebration Parade at Union Station, you've got a pretty good picture. I don't know if you've seen those pictures or not, but you've got people that are jam-packed. Like even for the parade, like I'm trying to get Olivia close enough to see, and we're like this. It was insane. But they they don't even hold a candle to what people thought about Jesus, right? It would have been like people running into the streets to mob them, right? And so they're all coming at Jesus. They're pushing to get near him. They're pressing on him. They're shouting. As soon as he hits the edge of that city, they're on him. Shouting and calling to him for mercy. And this title, Son of David, held a lot of weight and meaning. It held this promise. But it was also loaded with lots of implications for the Jewish people. Because the Messiah King would descend from the line of David, who was Israel's greatest king ever, right? And the Son of David suggests all of these images of a Messiah with this royal lineage who would reestablish the throne of God in Jerusalem and make Israel like the top dog in the whole world, the kingdom of Israel. And the word would go out everywhere that the king was here. Israel longed for this Messiah, this descendant of this great King David who would drive out all of their enemies and restore the nation to its former glory. So when the people cried out, Jesus, son of David, they were expressing their faith that he was this long promised king. Verse 49, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And so Jesus says something interesting here. Jesus said to him, oh wait, we've missed something here, haven't I? So Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, he's ca- get up, he's calling you. And so throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. I love that. There's a sermon right there. I mean, that's a whole sermon. They said, dude, before they're like, shut up. And he's like, hey, I want to talk to him. Dude, get up, right? He sprung, he jumps up, throws his cloak off. We, we should respond, I think, to Jesus in that same way, right? When Jesus calls, whatever, I'm there. Yes, sir. So Jesus asks him this question, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? Maybe it's not. Or maybe there's more to the story. We don't know. But I do think that's an interesting question. And the blind man says to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on his way. And Matthew tells the same story with more detail, but he reveals again the second blind man. And we learn from Matthew that a part of this whole conversation, Jesus asks them something about their faith. He's like, do you believe that I'm able to do this? 
Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir, we do. So Jesus touches their eyes and he says, let it happen to you according to your trust. And their sight was restored. And just to point something out here, anytime that we see differences between the gospels, Matthew, um, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things we have to remember is that these stories are complementary. They're not contradictory. And so you have four different people giving us their perspectives on what happened. And so some people might know the names of the people in the story. Others may have been observing it for from a, a different angle or from another place. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind. So they offer us their perspectives. But imagine what this moment was like for these blind men. And we don't know if they've been blind from birth or if something had happened to them. Jesus puts his hands on their eyes. And immediately, it says immediately, right? Immediately, light becomes color. Buildings animals and people snap into focus. Blue and green and brown enter their minds, perhaps for the first time in their lives. And the first face that they see is Jesus. It's a pretty sweet deal if you can get it, right? He is the son of David. Jesus is the first thing that these men see. And I'm sure that their eyes worked perfectly after this. But their picture, their perception of Jesus may have been fuzzy. And let me explain that. Because in their experience, they saw Jesus as the healer. And he was. He absolutely was. But calling him son of David signaled that they expected something from him. They expected him to use his power and his authority to overthrow the Romans and to conquer the world of men. That title, Son of David, specifically refers to prophecies for the Messiah, one of which talks about making the enemies of God footstools, right? You're going to be my Ottoman, right? calling him son of David, that was their expectation. But Jesus, he is about the father's purposes, not those of humankind. And God's plan was much, much larger in scope than merely conquering the world of men and man-made kingdoms. Because here's the deal. Jesus came to conquer the enemy of our souls. It was much bigger than this whole people thing that was going on. In fact, everything that Jesus talked about, he's telling us, listen, other people are not your enemies. You're supposed to love other people. There's an enemy to your soul, and that's what's important. So Jesus came to restore this original harmony between God's kingdom and mankind's kingdom. This, uh, the intent, the original intent of our creator way back in Genesis, where those worlds overlapped. So as we move into the story with the disciples, there were three different times that Jesus tries to have this hard conversation with his guys, trying to get them on the same page with him so they would understand what his mission was and what he was really there to do. And he reveals his destiny as this servant king and what it truly means for him to be the Messiah. But three different times that happens, it's abundantly clear that the disciples do not get it. We can't be too harsh on them because I don't think we would have gotten it either, okay? 
So I promised you three blind guys, and we've spoken about two of them. But the third is Peter. <laughs> You're like, what? I don't remember Peter being blind. That's, that's not in my Bible. You're right, it's not. Hang with me here. Yes, that Peter, by the way, the one that, you know, Jesus' closest friend, the guy that saw some pretty amazing things. He got to see Jesus glow, and he got to see Moses and Elijah hanging out with him on the mountain. Lord, this is great. Let's just build a tent here and stay forever. Nope, that's not the plan. Sorry. He'd seen a lot. But Peter was blind. And Mark's account of the story, there's this moment with Jesus and his guys. And just so you know, by the way, the book of Mark uh, actually comes from the eyewitness accounts of Peter. And uh, the story goes that basically Mark followed him around everywhere, writing all the stuff down that uh, happened. Peter would tell him stories and he would write them down, probably more like this because it's a scroll. But he was writing all these things down somehow, kind of documenting the story of Peter. And apparently he had to chase him all over the place because Peter was so about what God wanted him to do that he was just going from place to place all the time. And so Mark is documenting Peter's account of what he told him. And so that makes the story even more special because Peter was this eyewitness to these details of the story. And so it makes it even more powerful what we're about to read. So in Mark 8:27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples this question. He's like, okay, who do people say that I am? And so they told him, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist. And others say that you're Elijah, right? And still others say that you're one of the prophets. Jesus starts this discussion by asking this question, what are people saying about me? But we know that Jesus already knew the answer to that question, right? You get that, I mean, he's a rabbi. He's using this Jewish way of teaching, which involves asking questions. And so he wants them to start thinking about these things because he's about to teach them something. And so, uh, what are people saying? What are they talking about? Give them an opportunity to think about it. And then he goes on to say, okay, but who do you say that I am, guys? Who do you say that I am? And so, of course, Peter, being Peter, the guy that jumped out of the boat, the guy that, you know, right, Peter's always, let me at it, right? Ready, fire, aim. That's Peter. So Peter jumps in to answer the question. You are the Christ. And then we have this weird thing that kind of happens here between this verse and the ones that follow. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And we've talked about this before, but the idea here, um, it's this moment where Jesus is trying to reveal to them something but it's obvious that they're not completely getting it. Now, notice here, Jesus is asking his closest friends, who do you, you, not anyone else. Who do you say that I am? And so it's this moment. He's asking them, have you really seen me? Peter jumps in to answer, you're the Christ. Or in other words, you are the promised victorious king. Something we need to know about the word Christ, by the way. Or, yeah, Christ. So the word Christ, you need to uh, take that word and it would be anointed king is what you should substitute when you see the word Christ. Because that's really what it means. And so anointed king. So who am I? Who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the anointed king, or in other words, the promised victorious king, the son of David, sent defeat to defeat the Romans. So there's a few things happening. At first, Jesus does not deny what they said. Did you notice that? Maybe one of the first times he acknowledges by not denying it that he is the Messiah. He doesn't disagree. He doesn't debate with them. 
In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he commends Peter, but he's like, listen, dude, you didn't know this on your own. The spirit had to reveal this thing to you, which again, it's not denying it, is it? So people that say, well, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Yes, he did. (laughs) So we have this moment where he's like, you could not have known that on your own. The spirit had to reveal it to you. And then Jesus tells them to keep it to themselves. And here's why. Because Israel was this powder keg. It was this bomb ready to go off. And you had the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. All of these people with different expectations. Actually, probably not that different from each other. But expectations of who the Messiah would be. And who threatened to compromise Jesus' mission. His messianic mission did not involve revolution or a military plan for world conquest. Not yet. But that's another story for another message. So it's obvious that they don't have the full picture because Jesus uses this as this teaching moment. And he tries to explain his mission again to the disciples who are struggling to grasp who he is. And Mark makes it clear when Jesus tells them that he does it as plainly as he can. And earlier times when he told them, it was a little mysterious and maybe they didn't fully get it because of that. But in this moment, he says, and he told them plainly. Mark makes it clear that Jesus tells them what's about to go down in Jerusalem. Check this out. Mark 8, 31, 32. Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. That's pretty plain, right? So put yourself in their place. This guy, your Messiah, one of your closest friends, the one who's spoken into your life over the course of three years. You're like, wait a minute, Jesus. We followed you because you told us that the kingdom of God was at hand. And now you have this weird plan to go to Jerusalem and face arrest and then execution. And then you're going to, I don't even get this whole master plan about coming back to life a few days later. What is that even about? Needless to say, this did not sit well with these men who had given up their lives for him. And I wonder if there was this thing that was going on in their brains and their minds where it's like, we have left everything to follow a lunatic madman. How am I going to explain this to Trisha, right? That's what they're thinking. You know, I told you not to go with him. Remember when we talked about that and you left the boat and I said, ah. These are real people. Are we following this lunatic holy man with this death wish? What is going on here? Well, Peter, of course, is having none of that. And so Peter does something that's interesting. He takes Jesus aside, which is actually a sign of respect because he's about to let Jesus have it, right? But he doesn't want to do it in front of the other disciples because that would not be respectful. So he takes Jesus aside and he's like, actually, Matthew 16 says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I imagine Peter saying, listen, master, you have nothing to worry about. No one is going to touch you while I'm around. I mean, we've got the sons of thunder over there, right? You know why we call them that. We call Judas the knife for a reason, Jesus. 
No one is going to lay a hand on you. In fact, master, listen, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Maybe we should just wait to go to Jerusalem until we can get more followers and more people and build an army and get people and like get more people around us and then they can't touch you and nothing will happen. And this is where Peter's perception becomes fuzzy and his blindness shows. Peter believes, right? He believes Jesus to be the Messiah, God's anointed, but it doesn't mean the same thing to Peter as it does to Jesus in this moment. Jesus notices that all the disciples are watching this happen, and then we have this really curious thing that happens where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because Peter sees Jesus as the son of David, the victorious king who had come to defeat the Romans. And that's not untrue. But Jesus says, I am the suffering servant, king of Isaiah 53. The disciples see following Jesus means fame and fortune and status and importance. In fact, before they go to Jerusalem later on in the story, they're arguing about who's the best and who gets to hang out at his right hand and his left hand. And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. Jesus says, nope. Here's what it looks like. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or this one. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has been trying to open their eyes to this mission the whole time. But their desire is for a certain type of Messiah and it blinds them to the Messiah that Jesus really is. And here's the thing. I think this happens today. I think it happens to us all the time. Right? We come into uh, this community or church or we pray to God with our expectations set here for what he's going to do or what we feel like he needs to address or, or how he can meet our needs. We come in seeking a feeling like we had this experience and we want that experience to be the same way all the time. And then when that doesn't happen, what do we do? We get disappointed. Oh, oh man, spirit just wasn't there today. It just wasn't happening. We get discouraged because our expectations were not met. Let me just say, we serve a God that is in the business of defying expectations, resetting expectations. Because God's always, guys, thinking bigger than we are. We think about moments and he thinks about eternity. We think about days and he thinks about our lives. So in this case, Jesus is declaring to his disciples something that's so important here. It's like the kingdom has dawned and it may not look the way that you think it would or that it should, but it is happening. Heaven and earth are now colliding and God is taking back his kingdom from this world and its powers. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem and die. In fact, next week is Palm Sunday, which celebrates his entry into the city 
And even that whole thing mirrors all of these things that would happen with Caesar when he would enter a city and conquer it. Except Jesus is on a colt instead of a stallion. There's all kinds, I mean, it's amazing, the imagery. And even the things that they were shouting, it's all the stuff that would be shouted to Caesar. And it made everybody really nervous, right? And then Sunday following, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, after remembering him on Good Friday, which coincides with the beginning of Passover this year. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem and die. And in that process, he's going to do something. He's going to absorb all the pain and the hurt and the suffering and the darkness of this world. And everybody's going to see him lifted up as king. He will have a crown. He'll have a robe. He'll have a scepter. But it's not going to look the way that they thought it was going to. And all of a sudden you have the cross the symbol, really this offensive symbol for pain, for suffering that becomes this meeting place of heaven and earth. God becomes king who humbles himself and he offers this grace and this forgiveness and this self-giving love. Guys, an encounter with Jesus forces a decision on our part. If we genuinely encounter him, we have to make a choice. Jesus wants us to know that he's ready and willing to rule our lives. And that's what he means in Mark 1, 14 and 15 when he says, repent and believe. So when we see Jesus, guys, for who he really is, there's really only one of two ways that that can go. We can see him as king, right? It's the king he is. And we can be humbled. We know we need help. We know we need rescue from the darkness that's inside of us. So what we do is we confess and we say, man, the only place that I'm gonna be able to realign myself with what God has for me is when I bow my knee to the king. It's the only thing that's gonna do it. So we walk away from that encounter with Jesus and we can be completely changed and transformed and healed. And I'm not saying that it's this instantaneous process, but I am saying that the forgiveness is the first step in that process. We are changed. We are transformed. We're living for our purpose now. So that's one way. The other way that this can go is there are others that think they don't need to be rescued. In fact, we see in scripture that there are those that are utterly repelled by Jesus. They hate him. They hate him because he exposes the darkness in their hearts and their lives. They hate him because he wasn't what they expected. Or maybe they just like things the way that they are now. A lot of those guys that were in charge had a pretty good life. This is working out pretty good for me, Jesus. I don't think I need you here jacking everything up, okay? They like things the way they are, so they just want God to stay in the margins so they can call the shots. But here's the thing. Jesus will not allow you that. God's kingdom is invading. It's on. It's happening. 
So that pushing to the margins, a wise woman once told me that the word ego, right, that stands for ourselves, it simply means edging God out. And that's what we do. We push him to the sides. We take control, at least we try to. And that always ends up a mess. So Jesus isn't going to allow that in our lives. He forces us to make a choice. We pray for revival, right, as a church, and we long for, to be like those people in Acts. Man, it was so cool. Everybody was just throwing the cash in the middle of the room, and the people that needed stuff took it out, and the people that had stuff gave in. It was awesome, and the spirit was going crazy, and everybody was like, whoa, right? Like it was nuts. I want revival. That's what I want. But revival is just a churchy word to describe a critical mass of people who've really experienced Jesus. That's all that it is. And revival starts with the divine takeover in my life. Revival starts with the divine takeover in your life. That's where it starts. And over the areas of my life where I've tried to push God out to the margins, and the same thing for you. And guess what? I have a lot of them. We all do. Places where we want control. So it's all about surrendering to King Jesus. To see him for who he really is and seeking a real encounter with him. So today, I don't know your lives. I can't see into your hearts. God's the only one that can change hearts. But let me just say this. I don't know every dark crevice of your lives. I, I know I have my own where I've shoved God out. But some of us need to yield to the king today. The changes that we want to see in this world won't even start until we yield to the king. And you might be here and Maybe you've been hanging around. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you don't know. Maybe uh, you've been considering this whole thing, sitting on the sidelines in this whole Jesus thing for long enough. It's, it's been long enough. It's time to go. Today is the day that you need to humble yourself before your king. And listen, it's not because he's some jerk that wants to lord over you and tell you what to do and tell you all these rules that you have to live and all this stuff that you have to figure out and how to be a part of the club and make sure that you don't make anyone mad or if anyone because you broke one of the rules. It's not that. It's because Jesus loves you and he's demonstrated that. It's because he adores you. And he adores you so much that he wants to save you and he wants to transform you. He wants to make you into the best version of yourself, of God's creation that you can be. And maybe there's some of us here and we've been Christians for a while. We call ourselves Christians, but we haven't had a real encounter with God in a long time. I'm talking about a kingdom moment where Jesus is allowed to shine a light into our hearts, exposing the darknesses that are inside of us and opening us up to his healing grace so that he can address those things in us. Maybe we haven't had a moment like that in years. Listen, that moment can be yours today. Some of us need to come to Jesus today and remind ourselves who our king is. And then we need to live our week like it's true. 
Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, I, I am humbled by the amount of love and concern that you have for me. As a flawed creation, God, that warts and darkness and stubbornness and pride and all of the things that you, you love me and that you see past all those things. You don't see me for who I am, God, but you see me for what I can be. I thank you that you see all of us in that way with potential. And God, some of us have been living lives where we haven't been all in, where we've straddled the fence, where we've allowed things to creep into our hearts, into our lives, things that we hold on to because they give us some measure of control. God, I pray that we would bow to our knee today and surrender to you, that we would raise our hands and surrender to our king and our creator and say, I need you. I need you to eradicate these things. I need you to look into my heart. I need you to change this situation. And then God, I pray we would allow you to do it. You're the only one who brings me peace. And many of us, God, have conflict in our hearts. So, Father, as we enter this season where we remember, remember the journey, the walk that your Son, our Messiah, took on our behalf, the pain, the suffering, the darkness, all of these things And then the sacrifice of his love for us and the joy of his resurrection so that we could live as a part of your kingdom forever, God. That's love. Love we didn't deserve. Love that saves us. So today, God, I just pray that you would do what you will, what you want, and that we would submit to that. That after this day, we would never be the same. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.